The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Um, Let's do the 149th Psalm. We'll work backwards. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song in his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. The honor, this honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Okay, um, I'm not going to read you the text verse today because it's the entire chapter. It'll be the longest number of verses I've ever done. Um, It's Exodus 39, 1 through 43. I'm not going to read them as we go along until we get to the end where there's some new words in there. But other than that, it's exactly the same minus the tenses from um, a previous sermon. So I'm not going to do that. What I want you to do instead of going to Exodus 39 is to go to Hebrews chapter 7. Because we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 more than anywhere else today. So be ready with that. And um, I asked a question in the Bible class. And I I told two people yesterday, because one of them demanded, and they're not to say anything, but my question was, um, in the Bible, at the death of Aaron, it uh, specifically and very poignantly gives the details of his death, including the fact that they went up the mountain, he uh, had his garments removed from him, then he died. The garments were to be passed on to his son. And I asked, why is that in there? Because there is nothing in the Word of God that is not in there for a reason. All right, and then I even uh, added to it by uh, giving uh, another thing for them to think about, and it is why was Christ on the cross without any clothes at all? It specifically notes that his garments were taken from him, and why is that? And it has bearing on everything that we need to know in our theology. It's very important, and yet those are concepts that you just pass by with. You read them, and you don't even think of them. And yet when I was doing this sermon, I realized the importance of what is described in Aaron's death and the transfer of the garments. Anyway, today's passage is like the past few. It deals with the actual work which was accomplished in accord with the details which had been previously given. Therefore, like those past few sermons, we will find a parallel thought to look over which relates to the work being conducted rather than minutely analyzing the verses as we already have. As the verses today deal with the garments of the priesthood, it would be good to look at how those garments actually demonstrate the inferiority of the law of Moses and the priesthood of Aaron to that of the covenant given in Christ's blood, which is administered by the priesthood of the Lord. It should never be our intent to find fault in the law of Moses in the sense that it was an inappropriate aspect of God's working in the dispensations of time. And yet, the author of Hebrews says this concerning the law of Moses. He said, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. 
What then was faulty concerning the covenant? Anybody? If not the covenant itself, what was faulty? The people. Thank you. The answer is the human aspect of it. It was administered by a fallible man, meaning Moses. Its priesthood was carried out by fallible men, meaning Aaron and all of his descendants. And the people under the law were never made perfect by the law itself. Paul tells us in Romans that the law is holy and that the commandment is holy and just and good. However, because man has fallen, the law can only highlight our sin. It was never intended to remove it by our efforts. Rather, it was given to show us that we needed something more. The law could remove our sin, but only in its fulfillment. And that could only come about by one who had no sin of his own. Enter Jesus. It is he whose work was needed in order for the law to make us holy. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 90. It's the oldest psalm in the Bible written by anybody? Moses. It's Moses, the oldest psalm in the Bible. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Only after Christ fulfilled the law could the work of our hands be established. And only through the administration of a new covenant in the mediation of a better high priest can we hope to please God. Thank God for Jesus Christ who does all of this for us. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is a better priesthood. It's verses 1 through 31 of Exodus uh, chapter 39. But as I said, I'm not going to read you the verses. The idea of a priest is that of someone who has authority to perform religious ceremonies on behalf of himself and of others. The first actual mentioning of a priest in the Bible is that of the mysterious man, Melchizedek, which is in Genesis chapter 14. Here's what it says. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Avram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, meaning Abraham, gave him, meaning Melchizedek, a tithe of all. This is all that is recorded here about this mysterious man. There were certainly priests since the time of the fall. Adam would have performed this function on behalf of his family. But the idea of a priest who administered on behalf of others is really only first seen in Melchizedek. This Melchizedek is reintroduced into the Bible in the 110th Psalm, where David reaches back into the words of Genesis and makes a prophecy based on a most profound deduction, certainly inspired by the Spirit of God. It says there, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. David foresaw a person who would come who would be a priest forever. And he explains this with the words, according to the order of Melchizedek. One would have to be extremely astute to understand all that this simple sentence means. In fact, even with a detailed explanation of it in the book of Hebrews, people still often fail to grasp the full significance of David's amazingly deep and yet short and simple proclamation. This is the only other time in all of the Old Testament that Melchizedek is mentioned. And of course, this is proper because the law of Moses had a priest. It had a priesthood, and it also had a place where the priests were to minister. 
Along with that, the priests had all of their duties and responsibilities very clearly laid out in the Bible. For the law of Moses and the Aaronic priesthood which served that law, Leviticus details the majority of their responsibilities. And inclusive of all of these other things, the garments of the high priest and his associate priests are all given in minute detail right here in the book of Exodus. The law is given, the sanctuary along with all of its furniture is described, and so it is natural that the ordination process for the priests and the garments of the priests are described at this time now as well. Those priestly garments were called for by the Lord, and now their actual manufacture is detailed in obedience to the Lord's word. This is the purpose of verses 1 through 31 of this chapter. The significance of these things and their amazingly prophetic pictures of Christ were explained in several sermons already. And to understand their meaning, if you didn't see those sermons, you can go back and you can read them or you can watch them. It is truly an astonishing study which would be well worth your time. And so as far as the Aaronic priesthood, it has been called for, it is being prepared, and it will be fully ordained and established in the pages ahead. Most of the duties of that priesthood will be minutely described, as I said a moment ago, in the book of Leviticus. This priesthood will last for about 1,500 years. It was superseded by the greater priesthood of Christ Jesus, but it still continued until A.D. 70, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were exiled. Amazingly, and in fulfillment of Scripture, this same priestly line has been identified through modern DNA analysis and people of that line today are being prepared for reinstating this ancient priesthood. A high priest has already been selected, and the garments and associated implements necessary for conducting their duties have been fashioned. Though this priesthood is obsolete through the work of Christ, God has shown that it would, in fact, be reinstated for a set period and for a specific reason. This is detailed in Daniel chapter 9. In verse 24 of Daniel 9, it says that a period of 70 weeks or periods of seven-year intervals would lay out the entire future prophetic scenario for the completion of the time of the law of Moses, including its priesthood. That then is a 490-year period. Until the time of Christ's death, it was a period of 483 years. At that time, the prophetic calendar stopped. The temple sacrifices were no longer acceptable to God, and as I said, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. That was exactly to the day, 14,000 days after the cross of Jesus Christ. That, however, still leaves a seven-year period left unfilled. It says in Daniel 9, verse 26, that the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed. Okay, we know that happened in A.D. 70. But then in Daniel 9, 27, it says this, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. If the sacrifices and offerings that are noted after the death of the Messiah and further the destruction of the temple in AD 70 are noted in verse 27, then it means that verse 27 is speaking of a future date when they will be reinstated. It's not explaining verse 26. It's coming after verse 26. We are living in those times, and we are living in extraordinarily exciting times as the fulfillment of Bible prophecy is being realized right before our eyes. All of what we are seeing now in the reestablishment of this Aaronic priesthood goes back to these passages in the book of Exodus, including the details of the garments that we're looking at today. 
observant Jews in Israel need only to pick up a copy of the Bible and read what we're looking at in this passage in Exodus in order to know what to make and how to make it. But because these things only pointed to Christ, and because David spoke of a priesthood on the order of Melchizedek, which was to come, and because Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant for Israel, and finally, because we have already seen an explanation for all of the things in today's passage in past sermons, we're going to look at what actually replaces Aaron's priesthood and why the efforts of Israel in reestablishing the priesthood are only a stepping stone to the final termination of the law of Moses. As I said, David made that seemingly offhanded reference to Melchizedek in the 110th Psalm. Unless you stop and really contemplate it, you might just keep on reading without ever giving a second thought to what he says. But the author of Hebrews was determined to explain what we might so cursorily just skip over. And so he reintroduces Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 5. And then he talks of him briefly again in Hebrews chapter 6 and more especially in chapter 7, explaining why this guy is such an important figure. Here's what he says first in Hebrews 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but he was, uh, it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The author directly quotes David's words of the 110th Psalm and explicitly tells us that these words are speaking of Jesus. David, under inspiration of the Spirit, wrote words of a coming high priest. However, that his priesthood would be according to the order of Melchizedek brings in some obvious problems. They will be explained by him as he goes along. In Hebrews 6, the author speaks of the immutability of God's promises and the surety that we have, therefore, in the oath of God, noting that God cannot lie. In this, he's referring to the word of the Lord through David concerning the high priest to come. Remember what the Lord said through David in the 110th Psalm. He said, the Lord has sworn, so this is an oath, and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. To close out chapter 6 of Hebrews and to prepare us for his detailed explanation of chapter 7, the author states these words. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The hope of God is in the oath of God and in his trustworthiness in fulfilling that oath. This hope is that Jesus is the coming high priest that David spoke of, a high priest forever. What is he talking about? Chapter 7 of Hebrews explains it. And we will look over his words, but we can only do so very briefly. A full evaluation of what he says in chapter 7 would take innumerable pages of commentary. As we proceed, remember why we are even looking at this passage. It is because we're going through Exodus and are evaluating those things which are a part of the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood. 
Was this to be a permanent priesthood, as people seem to think? Hebrews Roots Movement people that are constantly reintroducing the law. It's what Paul argues against in uh, the book of Galatians. No Judaizers coming in and reinserting the law. But if it was to be a permanent priesthood, if so, there would be no need for Jesus. All right? So we're going to go now to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." The author notes the name and the positions of Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. He doesn't question or dispute this. He is speaking of a real person who really filled the offices of both king and priest, which is something that's not allowed under the law of Moses. Under the law, the two offices were not to be mixed. When someone attempted to mix those two offices, bad things happened. One such account is recorded about King Uzziah. Here's what it says from 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But when he was strong in his heart and was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This is something that a king was not allowed to do. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they withstood King Uzziah. And said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there, on his forehead, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he, was, he also hurried to get out, because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. The next thing the author of Hebrews notes is that he filled this king-priest role at the time of Abraham. Thus, Melchizedek precedes both the priesthood of Aaron and the kingship of Israel, typified by David, who wrote the 110th Psalm. Next, he explains the meaning of his name and title. Melchizedek is from Melech, or king, and Sadiq, which means righteous. He is further Melech Shalem, or king of peace. Thus, in both titles... He typifies Christ, but he further typifies Christ in that the Bible gives no record of his genealogy, birth, or death. And because of this, his priesthood is considered an eternal one. This doesn't mean that it literally is, but that in record, that's all that God wanted us to know in order to make the typological picture of the Lord. So you can see how astute and how profound David's proclamation is. He looked at a couple verses that seemed to say nothing, and he drew out something that actually pictures something of the most detailed importance that we could possibly imagine. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was, meaning Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. 
But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed uh, by the greater or better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The point here is to show the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over that of Aaron. Aaron descended from Levi, who came from Jacob, who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham. Greatness within the Bible is reflected in the preceding generation. Thus, a father is considered greater than the son. So that guy sitting in the back row is greater than me. And I'm greater than my son, Thor. Woohoo! So you see how the Bible works? That's what's going on there. Abraham is the father of the Hebrew people and is thus the greatest of that race. However, Abraham, how great was he? He gave a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek, demonstrating that Melchizedek was the greater. This is supported by the subsequent blessing of Abraham by Melchizedek. The greater blesses the lesser. Levi received tithes from Israel, and therefore the Aaronic priesthood administered by the sons of Levi, therefore, is said to have paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. The reason for this is that Levi was still in Abraham's loins when Abraham presented his offering to Melchizedek. It's the same concept as the transfer of original sin. Charlie Garrett was in the loins of Adam when Adam sinned. Thus, I sinned through Adam just as Levi paid tithes through Abraham. And so we have established several things already about Melchizedek. He is a king and a priest, something greater than that belonging to the priesthood of the law, which was separated from the kingship of the law. He also preceded the priesthood of the law, and yet his priesthood is, from a biblical concept, still in effect. It is eternal. The Aaronic priesthood had a beginning when the law was introduced. It also had an ending with the establishment of the new covenant. Therefore, the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater in this respect. Further, Melchizedek is typical of the Son of God because he has no recorded genealogy. Thus, his priesthood is greater than that of the law which was administered through Moses and which began with the man Aaron, both of whose births and deaths are recorded. Also, because Melchizedek is shown to be greater than Abraham, and Abraham is greater than Levi, then the priesthood of Melchizedek is also greater than the priesthood of Levi. David said that someone was coming who would have a priesthood on the order of Melchizedek. Thus, this coming priesthood would be greater than that of Aaron in each of these respects. To support this, the author now asks an obvious question. He says from verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Everybody heard that? There's a change of the law. The law is done. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. I wish people would read Hebrews and grasp it. These Hebrew Roots Movement people refuse to go here and to learn and to be educated about what is going on in God's doctrine, which is contained in the Holy Bible. The author, in these words, now brings in the idea of making subjects of the law perfect. 
Did this occur? Did the people of Israel become perfect through the law? No. Okay. The answer is no. If people were made perfect through the law, then offerings would have been made one time and they would have ended, but they never ceased. They were offered continuously and year after year after year. They only made people aware of their sin, but could never remove the sin. Instead, they only temporarily covered them until the next offering for sin. But even more, if the people were made perfect under the law, there would be no need for another priesthood. But David promised that someone would be coming who would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Why would there be a need for such a priesthood if the priesthood of Aaron sufficed in perfecting the people? There would be none. But David proclaimed differently. And if there was to be a change in priesthood, then there by default must be a change of the law. Thank you. The law already had a priesthood. In fact, the two were dependent on one another. The law is out. The law is out. If the priesthood ended, so would the law which mandated the priesthood. And if the law which mandated the priesthood ended, then the priesthood mandated by the law would be of no effect. The law is done. That is exactly what he's telling us here. And people cannot understand this. And they keep reinserting, don't eat pork. They keep reinserting, you got to be there on a Sabbath day. And you got to do this and you got to do that. And you're saying, what Jesus Christ did on that cross is wholly insufficient. You can make up his insufficiencies. And that is heresy. And even more, these things were being written about Jesus. But Jesus was not of the line of Levi, and therefore he could not be an administrator of the law. We cannot be under the law because he doesn't administrate the law in any way, shape, or form. When he says, I had somebody quote this to me just a day ago on YouTube, on my last sermon or last prophecy update or something, they said, oh, if you keep my commandments, the one from uh, Matthew where he says, um, not a jot or a tittle will fall from my commandments until all is fulfilled. And I said, all is fulfilled. He did it. But he can't be administrator of the law anyway. He, he lived under the law. He fulfilled the law, but he could not administer it. So why would you be observing the law if he is your high priest, if he's not administering the law? Do you see the logic? It makes no sense at all. It is like having a football bat. It makes no sense at all. Jesus descended from another tribe. Which tribe did he? From Judah. That's right. The law is out. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The author's logic is impeccable. David spoke of a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. That priesthood is fulfilled in Christ, but Christ descended from Judah. Therefore, there must be a change in regards to the law itself. This is not a change in the law, but a change of the law. And this law, which he will administer, is not one according to a high priest who will die to be replaced with another, but it is one according to the order of Melchizedek, who has no recorded death in Scripture, and thus it is an eternal life designed for an eternal priesthood. Verse 18, for on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made a made priest without an oath, 
for they have become priests without an oath. There's nothing said about an oath to Aaron. He was just simply installed. But he, meaning Jesus, with an oath by him who said to him, going back to the 110th Psalm, the Lord has sworn, there's an oath, and will not relent, you, Jesus Christ, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Can you imagine all that he's drawn out of those that one single verse from the 110th Psalm? His, it, it, it's unbelievable what the author of Hebrews was able to draw out. And we're not done yet. If Christ's priesthood is in effect, which it clearly is established that it is, then the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, is annulled. He says it right there, annulled. If you're reinserting the law, you are a heretic. You are trying to usurp what Christ has done, and you will not see the kingdom of heaven. End of story. All right, it is annulled. It was weak. It was unprofitable because it could save no one. It couldn't even save its own high priest, whose death is recorded. After him, each subsequent high priest died as well. However, in Christ, there is an indestructible life and a better hope which accompanies the covenant which he administers. It is a hope by which we can, through him, draw near to God. And again, the author uses impeccable logic in telling us that the first covenant came without an oath concerning the ordination of the priests. They were appointed, they served, and they died. However, the words of David under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and thus coming from God who cannot lie are spoken with an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Thus, again, the superiority of the priesthood of Christ is evidenced. In all ways, his priesthood is better than. Verse 23, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Verse 25, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The garments which were made for Aaron and which are exactingly detailed in today's verses from Exodus were transferred from high priest to high priest. When Aaron died, the transfer was noted, thus setting the pattern for all future sons of Aaron who filled this position. Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did, just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all of the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. The importance of recording this act right here cannot be understated. Aaron died and the garments of his priesthood passed on to his son. Aaron was prevented by death from continuing in his priesthood. Thus, the line of the priesthood remained, but the occupant of that priesthood was changed. The garments of the priesthood were a profound testament to the fallible nature of the priesthood. They stood as a witness against the law that could perfect no one. However, Christ died in fulfillment of the law. At the same time, he offered a new covenant in his blood. 
In his death, the law died with him. The law is out. The law is out. It could no longer have any possible power over him, and yet he never sinned under that law. As the wages of sin is death, then death could not hold him. It was impossible for him to remain dead. And Peter testifies to that fact in Acts chapter 2. Christ died apart from his garments, as is recorded in Scripture. And thus it is the man and not the garments which are the focus of his priesthood. Under the law, it was the garments and not the man which was the focus of the priesthood. Aaron was not considered fully ordained to the priesthood until he was clothed in the priestly garments. When his tenure as priest ended, his garments were removed from him, and he died in that order. I'm going to read that to you again. When his tenure as priest ended, his garments were removed from him, and then he died in that order. And so we see that in Christ's resurrection, it is to Jesus and not changeable garments which our eyes are to be directed. The garments that he now wears merely signify his eternal priesthood, which already exists in his eternal being. He is risen apart from the law. He can never die again. Aaron died and his ministry ended. Christ lives eternally, and therefore he continues forever in an unchangeable priesthood. And because of this, the author tells us that Christ can save us to the uttermost when we come to God through him. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6. Now, if we died with Christ, we call on Christ, we die spiritually of our flesh, and we become spiritually renewed in Christ. If we died with Christ, it's done by calling on Jesus. We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. As he lives to God, he always lives to make intercession for us. He is perfectly qualified to do so, as the author next explains, verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, or for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Christ has been, as it says, perfected forever. This does not mean that he was not forever perfect, but that under the law and as a man, if he had sinned, he would not have been perfect nor could he have been perfected forever. But he was sinless before the law and died in fulfillment of it. Thus, the law no longer has power over him. He is therefore perfected forever. He can never be found with fault under the law again because the law is obsolete. In him, the law is annulled. The law is out. Can you see now the ramifications of reinserting the law of Moses? How absolutely her heretical that is? If you go to a Seventh-day Adventist church and you say, I'm going to work my way to heaven, you have disgraced the cross of Jesus Christ by your efforts. If you say, I'm not going to eat pork because I'm going to merit God's favor, you have disgraced what he has done. That law is done. It is completely and absolutely done, and he can't be a minister of it anyway. If you're trying to buy his favor, you're slapping God in the face. Unlike the high priests of Israel who had to first offer for their own sins, and then only after that could they offer sin for the sins of the people. 
Christ offered himself in his perfection before the law for the sins of all of the people. What the high priest of the law of Moses could never do for the people, Christ has done for his people. If you wonder why there has been such minute detail concerning the garments of the priests of the law, remember that sermon on and on and on and your eyes are glazing over and you're all falling asleep and I'm trying to wake you up? This is the reason why it's so absolutely important because theology matters and doctrine matters. In type and in picture, each detail of that sermon pointed to Christ. But in reality, when worn by the human mediator of the law, it pointed all the more not to his perfections, but to his imperfections. Only in Christ are the perfections realized. As a side note to the idea of priests, the last time the term is used is in Revelation chapter 20 with these words, Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those who willingly refuse the mark of the beast during the tribulation period will be granted a high honor. They will be raised to life and can never die again. And they will be priests of God and of Christ during that marvelous millennial period. It is fitting that the idea of a priesthood in scripture enters with the enigmatic Melchizedek who pictures Christ and it ends with those who are made priests through faith in the work of Christ. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, with that intent, Christ is our high priest, ceasing never. With him as our high priest, we have a sure confidence. Imagine the grace. His mercies are forever, never being ceased. Through him, we are shown the favor of God's face. Thank God for our high priest, Christ Jesus, and for the work he has done and continues to do, the beautiful work that he has done for us, our great high priest, ever faithful and true. Our second thought today, much shorter. So the children of Israel did all the work. It's verses 32 through 43 with the final verse of chapter 39, the long repetition of the verses from the previous chapters is ended. The instructions were given and the instructions were followed through with being meticulously recorded as evidence of that fact. And so now we come to the final verses of the chapter, verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. The minute details of the previous chapter find their culmination in this verse. First, the work is said to be finished. Two descriptions are given. Given, It says, Mishkan Ohel Moed, tabernacle, tent of meeting. The tabernacle is the dwelling place, and the tent is what covers the dwelling place. The two are noted separately and yet belonging to one another, almost as a pleonasm intended as an emphasis. The two will be mentioned separately in verse 33. Verse 32 going on, And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. The second aspect of this verse is that the work was not only accomplished, but it was done according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This takes us back 34 sermons to the words of the Lord in Exodus 25, verse 40, which said this, See to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Just as Moses was shown, just as the people were instructed, so the work was accomplished. Verse 33, 
And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, and the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamp set in order, all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grates of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the laver with its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, and the garments of ministry to minister in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and his son's garments to minister as priests. These verses confirm in one place all that was made. The only word of exception in all nine of those verses is that which is translated as set in order in verse 37. It is a new word in the Bible, ma'arakha. It means an array and is most commonly used in the idea of a battle array where an army is lined up for war. The lamps of the menorah were so set up as if a battle of the goodness of light is dispelling the evil of darkness. What a marvelous picture of Christ the Lord, the light of the world shining forth through the darkness. Verse 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. This is a reaffirmation of the words just spoken in the second clause of verse 32. It noted that they did what was commanded, then what was done was noted, and now it again notes that they have done all that was commanded. In six months or less, all of this work was engaged in and completed according to the minute specifications of the Lord. It is an amazing feat to consider. Verse 43, then Moses looked over all the work and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. The chapter's final verse shows that Moses inspected every detail. He had been shown the pattern on the mountain and he had been admonished to follow it exactingly. The directions were given, the work was accomplished, and now the chief inspector carefully evaluated each item to ensure that it met the requirements of the Lord. As it did, the record now for the third time notes that the children of Israel accomplished the tasks as required. With that note of achievement, we come to our final words of the chapter. Verse 43 finishes with these words, and Moses blessed them. It is possible that Moses blessed the people with the words of the 90th Psalm, which formed our text verse of the day. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Whether these or other words of commendation, the leader of the people was pleased with the work, and so he blessed them for their efforts. The tabernacle was ready, the law would be continued, and the Lord would dwell in the people's midst. Moses' blessing was now an affirmation of these facts. Today, we have seen that the law was only, only a stepping stone to the greater work of Christ. If the law was served by such marvelous items and was regarded with such minute detail and care, then surely how much more precise and glorious is the greater ministry of Christ for us? Again, if the Lord was willing to dwell among the people in a sanctuary wrought by fallible hands and corruptible materials, which were glorious nonetheless, just imagine the splendor which lies ahead for those who are in Christ Jesus. The people labored towards the day when the Lord would occupy his dwelling. How much more willing should we be to labor towards the day when we will dwell with him? 
let us never tire in our efforts to speak of the goodness of the Lord. And whatever be the labor of our hands, may the beauty of the Lord Jesus be upon us so that those labors will be established. Let it be so now and even until the Lord takes us home to be with him in his eternal dwelling place. Our closing verse today comes from 1 Corinthians 15. It's the 58th verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Can't say any more than this because we don't want anybody to know what I'm talking about, but you know what I'm talking about here. Next week is Matthew 1. It's the 18th verse. Okay, it'll be a Christmas sermon. We have permission to deviate from Exodus. Yes, the holiday does clear it. It's entitled, She Was Found with Child Through the Holy Spirit. That'll be our Christmas Day sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Now, I know this is going to be a little long, but we got 43 verses of poem to get through. The work is accomplished. Of the blue, purple, and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place as the Lord intended it to be and made the holy garments for Aaron as well as the Lord had commanded Moses as he did tell. He made the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine woven linen. He followed the details as the Lord had said. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads as well also to work it in with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen into artistic designs as we now know. They made the shoulder straps for it to couple it together as we see. It was coupled together at its two edges, thus it was made accordingly. And the intricately woven band of his ephod that was on it was of the same workmanship as well, woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine woven linen as the Lord to Moses did tell. And they set onyx stones, enclosed in settings of gold so well, they were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses, as the Lord to Moses did tell. And he made the breastplate artistically woven like the workmanship of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine woven linen, just as he was showed. They made the breastplate square by doubling it. When doubled, a span was its length and a span its width. And they set it in four rows of stones, this as the Lord did show, a row with a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald, such was the first row. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold in their mountings. No detail was missed. There were 12 stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to their names engraved like a signet as well each one with its own name, certainly, according to the 12 tribes, as we see. And they made chains for the breastplate. At the ends, like braided cords of pure gold, this, as the Lord did state. They also made two settings of gold and two gold rings, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. He accomplished each of these things. And they put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. Again, he faithfully accomplished these things. The two ends of the two braided chains, they fastened in the set, two settings as the Lord did relay and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front 
just as he did say. And they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate as showed, on the edge of it as he was told, which was on the inward side of the ephod. They made two other gold rings and put them on the two shoulder straps as per directions at hand, underneath the ephod towards its front, right at the seam above the ephod's intricately woven band. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the ephod's rings with a blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod. He did these things. And so the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had to Moses showed. He made the robe of the ephod of woven work, olive blue, doing exactly as he was instructed to do. And there was an opening in the middle of the robe, like the opening in a coat of mail, with a woven binding all around the opening so that it would not tear. There was to be no wardrobe fail. They made on the hem of the robe pomegranates, so they did do, of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen too. And they made bells of pure gold, and the bells with the pomegranates between, on the hem of the robe, all around between the pomegranates, a beautiful design upon the hem was seen. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, all around the hem, as the directions demanded of the robe to minister in, as the Lord had to Moses commanded. They made tunics artistically woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons. This they did do, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats of fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen too and a sash of fine woven linen with a blue, purple, and scarlet thread made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses, yes, just as the Lord had said. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription attending to the word, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And they tied to it a blue cord to fasten it above on the turban as commanded to Moses by the Lord. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished too, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did do. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all its furnishings, as we know, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets also. The covering of ramskins dyed red, the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering, just as the Lord had said. The ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table and its utensils and the showbread, these pieces they did complete. The pure gold lampstand with its lamps, it was fitted right. The lamps set in order, all its utensils and the oil for the light. The gold altar, the anointing oil and the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grade of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the laver with its base also, but still even more. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords and its pegs as well, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, as the word does tell, and the garments of ministry to minister in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and his son's garments to minister as priests before the Lord's face. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it. Not a detail did they shirk. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. And Moses blessed them, a blessing to them he did submit. Lord God, establish the work of our hands and let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. So may it be for each who understands of the marvelous wonder of Christ Jesus. Thank you, O God. To you we send out our highest shouts of praise and they shall be lifted to you now and even for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. And now you know why I didn't read the passage at the beginning of the sermon. <laughs> <sighs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder, the marvel, 
of the supremacy of Christ Jesus and his priesthood for us over the law of Moses, which was indeed glorious. It was a glorious thing that they had, but it could never save anyone. And yet here we are saved by the precious blood of Christ who fulfilled that law for us and who now ever lives to intercede for us. What an honor, what a pleasure, what a treat. Lord God, there are a couple prayers here today. One of them must be unstated because of the position and person. The other one is for Bob, who had a stroke this past week on Monday. We thank you that he's here and that he's okay. We would pray for him and for Todd and my father, who have all gone through strokes in the past, and that you would continue to sustain them without any further problems in that area. And Lord, we pray for my mother, who is sick today, not here. She's hopefully attending online, but uh, we pray that she'll be all right. And we pray for every uh, replaced hip and every replaced knee and every uh, replaced scalp like uh, Roy has over there and all the other things that have been replaced, that they will continue to function properly. We thank you that you are here with us through these things and you've set us in this age where we can be repaired, almost like a, like a, a broken box can be put back together. We thank you for that. And we thank you for even the greater glory ahead, which is in the eternal body, which will be provided because of the work of Christ. And how wonderful will that be? So may that day be soon. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. We get the instruction for the uh, Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we read these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. He said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just so you know, that sound was Sergio obviously playing with the thing. I don't know what he was doing, but that's what that was. So don't, don't panic. Please come on forward. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brand new bread. It still tastes stale, doesn't it? I just opened it today. And it's meant to be that way because it's to picture Christ. Even in a plain body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So good to have you here today. So good. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, he sure is. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful blessings found in Jesus Christ. We love you and we praise you, and we exalt you in his name. Amen.